Alrighty then. So, page seven. The apostolic multiplication of house churches. Point A. Um, what is that? Oh, I forgot I put this footnote down here. It's beautiful. George Patterson. I love that guy. <laughs> so in the foot, footnote, just from from uh, before the break, he starts out, like, when you read that article, it's just so beautiful, like his four main principles of uh, planting house churches. Where is it? He says... Uh, he just goes one, two, three, four. On the uh, second page at the bottom, number one, know and love the people you disciple. <laughs> Seems simple. <laughs> Not that common. Two, mobilize your disciples to edify, i.e. love, immediately those they are discipling. Three, teach and practice obedience to Jesus' basic commandments in love before and above all else. Four, build loving, edifying, accountability relationships between disciples and churches in order to reproduce churches. <laughs> it's just like love, 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 love. Begin, do it in the middle, and in. One, two, three, four. <laughs> it's pretty awesome. And he worked in Honduras for whatever, 25 years, amongst the people where the, where the term macho came from. And so, like, he worked amongst the macho people. And this is how he uh, established a healthy, vibrant church. A, the most striking aspect of the New Testament church is its dynamic growth. Oh, I didn't even, I didn't read it. Sorry. <laughs> so, the footnote, we must know and love a people before we can disciple them. At home or abroad, every discipler needs to ask, for whom am I responsible? If a missionary, and so this is the basic bounds of the fivefold ministry. For whom am I responsible and for whom can I love in the situation? And agreed, Paul had a fairly large influence and family that he discipled, but obviously he was a very mature man of which I know nothing about. So if a missionary fails to do this, the geographic and ethnic limits of his ministry remain blurred. He will jump from opportunity to opportunity. I asked one of these wandering gold prospectors in Central America what his area of responsibility was. He said, oh, I'm winning the country for Christ. He goes from city to city, preaching in prisons and army camps. He bombs villages with tracks from his Cessna. It's fun, and folks back home eagerly finance it. But he will never plant a reproductive church until he learns to hold the people of a community in his heart. I mean, that is apostolic right there. You want a definition. So, all right. So, the A, the most striking aspect of the New Testament church is its dramatic growth. British uh, missionary Roland Allen spoke of this as the spontaneous expansion of the church. And uh, I pay tribute to Roland. I didn't... Uh, I, I wasn't uh, a disciple of Roland until actually, I mean, I, I scanned his stuff a little bit when I was in seminary, but it's when I came to uh, to IHOP and started running with uh, Rich and Tim that I really started to get the Roland, Roland Allen bug. And then you start like reading, and now almost 100 years later, you see Roland Allen 
everywhere in this grassroots organic house church missions movement. It's just like, oh my goodness, a guy who sowed his life in obscurity and failure in his day is now producing a a, a crop of righteousness. And uh, he was a he was a missionary in China in the early 1900s and really was just completely rejected by his uh, Anglican Mission Society and really rejected by pretty much everybody. And now whenever you hear that phrase, you know, spontaneous, anytime you see this word spontaneous, you can almost always track it back to Roland Allen. And... Uh, so I, I I appreciate and the love and and love the guy, even though I don't agree with his theology. Okay, because of the reality of the good news of the kingdom and resurrection confirmed by the recent resurrection of the Lord Jesus, the speed with which the word of the Lord spread was staggering. Um, so he put down another quote. This was Roland's uh, first book, Missionary Methods: Saint Paul's or Ours, and this is the one that's just like fire (laughs) the whole book is just like so intense and uh, this is kind of roland allen his uh, raw and young and then his spontaneous expansion of the church is uh, a little more refined after some uh some testing in his life and so this is the first words in the book in a little more than 10 years, St. Paul established the church in four provinces of the empire, Galatia, Macedonia, Achaia, and Asia. Before A.D. 47, there were no churches in these provinces. In A.D. 57, Paul, Paul could speak as if his work there was done and could plan extensive tours into the far west without anxiety lest the churches which he had founded might perish in his absence for want of his guidance and support. So Acts 6, the word of the Lord continued to, to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to faith. Acts 9, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace, was built up, walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. The word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied in Acts 12 and then Acts 19. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord spread swiftly both to Jews and Greeks. So I just want to validate the idea of multiplication, that it's not just a church planning strategy. It ought to be an ideal in our minds as we function in leadership in the body of Christ to the authority that the Lord has given us, that our goal ought to be to raise up people who have a firm faith in the day of the Lord and the age to come and have a solid lifestyle that keeps that faith alive on their own. You know, if, if nobody else is around you, you want to raise up children that can actually continue to walk and believe in the day of the Lord and Jesus' return without anybody else around them. Obviously, a family shouldn't function that way, but that's how it ought to be the goal to raise up children in perfection and that there would be a continuous multiplication of people being raised up and leading others, saving them from the fire, so to say. Uh, B, the healthy reproduction of spiritual families in home-based fellowships. 
square off that right there. Spiritual families and home-based fellowships. The reproduction of spiritual families and home-based fellowships was the primary mechanism by which this spontaneous expansion happened. So spontaneous expansion of the church doesn't just happen in a vacuum. The Holy Spirit just happens and gets poured out and all of a sudden the church just multiplies. The Holy Spirit does happen and get poured out. And you see like the Crusades throughout throughout the world, the U.S., Latin America, Africa, Asia, where you have thousands, hundreds of thousands, and millions of people won to the Lord in crusades, and then they all disperse. You know, and you're like Julio Rubal, who leads, you know, hundreds of crusades in the 70s throughout South America, in which hundreds of thousands of people come to the Lord. And you see pictures. I don't know if you've ever seen Julio's pictures of his crusades in the 70s because he got saved at the Catherine Coleman crusade. And uh, and he believed in faith and people started getting healy, healed outside Catherine's crusade. He goes down to South America. Healings and signs and wonders are happening everywhere. It moves into stadiums and he goes for about three years you know, being hunted and almost getting killed and showing up at stadiums. And there's like, you know, the 60,000 person stadium is filled and there's 20,000 people outside the gate at six in the morning and people are rioting because they think that the government has stopped the crusade from happening. And, and just, you know, you see pictures and there's mounds of wheelchairs and crutches piled up on the stage and hundreds of thousands of people. And then he's gone. He goes back to the U.S. for a couple of years and comes back and there's nothing. Nothing. Because all those people are brought to the Lord and they have no family culture, atmosphere, and infrastructure to raise those people up in the Lord and devotion to the Lord. And it's the same dynamic of like John Wesley and George Whitfield, where if you've ever heard the, the famous declara- declaration of George Whitfield at the end of his life, he said, all my labors and revivals were like chains of sand that blew away in time. But John Wesley's labors were like links of iron that stood the test of time. Why? Because he led people to the Lord and integrated them into a home-based fellowship movement of classes organized into societies where there was actually a discipleship mechanism involved and people functioned in, in, uh, in families. So, uh, however, point B still, this reproduction was limited and localized to the people and places where the seed of the word of the Lord had been planted. Uh, to reach across cultural and geographic lines, God raised up and sent out apostolic bands. And so, um, so I didn't put in here, Acts 13 is actually in context to Acts 11. And so in Acts 11, to understand Acts 13, where they're praying and fasting, and the Lord says, set apart from me Paul and Barnabas to do the work that I have called them to, as to open the door to the Gentiles, the context of that is Acts 11. Now those who had been persecuted, who had, uh, those who, who had been scattered by persecution in connection with Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, telling the message only to the Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus, 
men from uh, Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus, and the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of them believed and turned to the Lord. So this is the dramatic shift of the story and narrative of the book of Acts. I mean, there's kind of the precursor in Cornelius's home, but this right here at the end of chapter 11 is really where the shift of locus and direction in the book of Acts happens. News of this, that the, the Gentiles, the hand of the Lord was with the Gentiles, meaning they received the Holy Spirit. News of this reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem. They sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. So you have the introduction of the church in Antioch and Barnabas. Um, then Barnabas wa- went to Tarsus to look for Paul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch, so that for a whole year Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During that time, the prophets came down, gave the word of the Lord, and then it shifts over to the narrative about uh, Peter and escaping from prison, and then it switches back over in chapter 13 to, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, uh, Lucius, Wimenaean, whatever, uh, while they were worshiping the Lord and testifying, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. And uh, clearly the sending, it's assumed that they sent them off with resources also. But they were sent off across the uh, kind of cultural lines. So if this is whether you guys are really familiar with all this in the missions world there's this big thing of you know Donald McGavern raised you know raised up the church growth movement and his whole point because he studied the church in India and because of the caste system he argued for homogeneous uh people movements where you need to plant churches in every realm of society that you don't need churches that are you know this uh this heterogeneous mix of people from all throughout society, that that's not the ideal, that you want churches that reproduce and they spread along societal lines, which is fine. I agree with that. Healthy reproduction, people function in their familial networks and relationships, but the Lord raises up and sends people out of home church networks across lines and breaks down those lines. So I have a lot of issues with the whole homogeneous people movement, people group movement, but whatever, you guys probably don't care, and it's not really relevant in my mind to uh, to a lot of things. Anyway, so uh, then Paul, Paul and Barnabas go out, they go on the tour, they come back in Acts 14. On arriving home back in Antioch, they gathered the church together and reported all the Lord had done through them, how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And so, um, what's my point? Keep moving. All right. So, when these teams went out, it's assumed they planted the same type of house churches that were exemplified in Jerusalem. This is just a kind of qualification point. That's never, you know, you get the kind of description of how the church functioned in Acts 2, Acts 5, Acts, uh, Acts 4, and Acts 5 
where you get the kind of feel of the inner life, how they gathered together, they, they used their resources towards the common good to give to the needy, they gave themselves to the, to the teaching of the scriptures, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship continually. But you don't really get the explanation of how the church functions after the first ten chapters or so. And I would just argue that it's, it's assumed in everybody's mind that when they go out and they're planning the churches outside of Jerusalem, that all those churches are patterned after the church uh, in Jerusalem. Um, and so like Acts 8, when the persecution happens and they scatter out, and then Paul starts going from house to house where those people were scattered out, they're not just going to the personal homes, they're going to the meetings, like in the Chinese house church, where the persecution happens, where, home, where when they're meeting in homes, those get broken up and the Christians get dragged off. And so they're doing house churches where they fleed and scattered to. And in Acts 20, he does the, I never taught, stopped teaching you from house to house. So clearly in Ephesus, they're doing the same type of thing. And then he tells the Thessalonians, you brothers became imitators of God's churches in Judea, functioning the same way in Thessalonica that they did in Jerusalem in Acts 2 through 5. So, uh, two, when the apostolic teams planted new churches, it was assumed that those churches would likewise mature and begin reproducing. In this way, the reproduction of house churches locally could be seen as growth by addition, while the sending out of apostolic bands to, to establish house churches in new areas could be seen as growth by multiplication. The spontaneous expansion of the church or the multiplication of the church requires both. And so I put a diagram in here from uh, George Patterson. I like the diagram because it gives the feel this was actually him diagramming out the, the, uh, the movement that he started in Honduras where he, he established a church that became the mother church. And if you'll notice, the mother church establishes four churches. And that's really the extent of those four churches. And then it multiplies out. So there's 16 churches in the diagram but the mother church has authority basically over those four churches. And it, the mother church obviously has influence, like, like Will and I were talking in the break. The mother church has direct influence over its four children and then indirect influence over its grandchildren. Like grandparents, they do have influence over their grandchildren and can enforce discipline but we don't let the you know Lydia's parents spank our kids because it's just inappropriate. Even more, Lydia's grandmother, the grandparents of Lydia of our children, almost enforce no discipline. Though there's influence and she plays with them, but there's not. And so you get the multiplication and the functioning and. I'm talking about two different things. I apologize. But the multiplication happens when you get movements along that are reproducing families, and then the Lord speaks and raises up and sends out teams across cultural lines to plant new churches that then are indigenous and reproduce in their own field. But what ends up happening in the missions movement is that the apostolic team gets sent out across cultural lines, but then doesn't let that family mature and reproduce on its own. And uh, which we'll get to in a second, you get perpetual paternalization. Um, 
Page 10, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, the multiplication of the church ought to be a natural function within the body. As there was no specialized evangelism program within the early church for localized growth, so there was no specialized missions program for cross-cultural and cross-geographic work. And put a quote in there by uh, Simpson. Um, you, and this is where it really like it becomes tough because you start running up into... You know, local church institutions, that thing is tough to bump up against. You know, the the machinery of that thing and the power of that thing. And you try to do house churches and you get some serious flack, you know, when uh, when when you take away from the big church, you know, influence over their flock and their flock starts giving, you know, their money not to them, etc. And... Uh, it shouldn't be from other churches anyway, but the likewise, the whole missions movement and the machinery of that thing is really hard for a home-based movement to function and send out missionaries out of a home-based structure. There's this need because of the way, it's the same way in the local church, because there's this enculturation and a, a you know, cultivation that your identity is in the corporate structure. Your identity is in this denomination. Your identity as a church and a people, you're not really a church unless you come and are part of this corporate structure. When in reality, if a group of believers gets together on the eighth day to celebrate the resurrection, they do communion together to remember the suffering before the glory, they worship and pray together, they collect offerings and give to the needy in their myth. That is a church. It's not a church if you're just getting together, hanging out in a coffee shop. But if you're celebrating the resurrection on the eighth day and breaking bread, communion, worshiping and praying together and giving to one another to each as he has needs, that thing is a church in the eyes of the Lord and no man, no man can invalidate it. And so likewise, establishing an identity of sending people, apostolic teams, across cultures to new places is likewise difficult to instill that that thing is by the Holy Spirit. It's not under the artificial machinery of a missions you know, organization and network that usually doesn't listen to the Holy Spirit. You almost have, you know, the same way the local church infrastructure never hears the Holy Spirit say, shut it down and sell that property. You almost never hear a missions organization and machine say, shut it down and don't grow to that unreached people group. It's not time right now. In 10 years, I will speak and I will raise up and send people in there. But right now, do not go there. It's just complete, almost completely void of listening to the Holy Spirit and fasting and prayer and the Lord raising up and sending out people at the right time into the right place. Um, but in the context of the New Testament, the apostolic bands that went out into unreached groups to establish spiritual families and home-based movements, th- those were sent out by the, the uh, house churches. C, thus the essential mechanism of the spontaneous multiplication of the church is familial maturation. Planting and raising new spiritual families is analogous to starting and raising human families. This can generally be seen in four phases, infancy, childhood, adolescence, and adulthood. And so 
the way that the spontaneous expansion happened was in context to faith, the Holy Spirit does signs and wonders. You're, you know, you ever wrestle over that verse where Jesus is in Nazareth and he couldn't do many signs and wonders. Why? Because of their lack of faith. Not faith for signs and wonders. Their faith that Jesus was the Lord and that they would give an account of their lives to Jesus. That was their lack of faith. This guy's we know his mom and his dad. We know his brothers and sisters. This guy cannot be the Lord of heaven and earth. No way. But when there's faith and acknowledgement of Jesus, the Lord uh, puts his stamp of approval with the Holy Spirit and signs and wonders are done. There's conversion, belief in Jesus, and then there's discipleship in the context of loving uh, fivefold ministry that matures those believers in their faith in the age to come and a lifestyle that doesn't walk according to the world, building up wealth and power and reward in this age. And so this is the mechanism, the reproduction of spiritual families in the context of homes uh, that spontaneous expansion ha- happens by in context to the Lord making it grow by the activity of His Holy Spirit. So uh, one, at infancy, you can kind of think of it as absolute dependence. There is that need when you, and I, and in my dysfunctional equation, I understand, you know, we're talking about sexual, you know, the 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 reproduction of the church this week and you know the repro- the sex ed in the church and the mechanics of it and i understand that i'm i'm like a single guy preaching on sex ed sex ed in high school being a single guy because you know this is the context we're in where we're not really doing it and i'm the single guy that is not doing it but the I have done it, I understand what it's like, and I understand they do it in the Bible, and I want to press towards it and and uh and believe for it, but I get this kind of experience where you know, like when Tim Miller first listened through my class, he calls me at ten thirty at night he's like john i I got up at eight this morning and I listened through your whole teaching fourteen hours this was this was from this was from way. This was from a number of years ago. And, uh, and I was like, dude. And he's like, my mind is melting. <laughs> and he said, and so like for the next three weeks, I spent like at least three to five hours a day emailing and meeting with Tim in side rooms and just working through issues. And it was just like the most intense infancy stage where it was just between me and him working out. And Tim and I had gone like this. I mean, really intense, like, arguments, like, heated at each other in staff meetings with AMS. And then, and so there's that emphasis stage. And then, like, dude, Tim Miller just, he just, I had so many gaps and weaknesses. And that guy is so, was so anointed by the Lord. The Lord just raised him up. And uh, he has so much clarity, such an inspiration and I think if I teach this class again, I'll make his his book, Poised for Harvest, like the mandatory reading because I was just reading through it this last week going, this is a freaking genius. This man is genius. <laughs> like you read that book and it's just like, 
this man is genius, what the Lord has given him. Anyway, so you get that emphasis, like intense, establish the faith of believers all the time, meeting their needs, like, and they're crying all the time, and it's a mess. And then childhood, there's kind of, there's heavy guidance, teaching and correction, but there's allowing to move out on their own and function and roles and leadership and encouraging them to do the stuff and and share the gospel. And then there's adolescence where there's not nearly as much correction and teaching, but there's intentional empowerment. And now we're going to, you know, we're going to go change the transmission in the truck, son, but, or whatever, that's a little bit big of a job, but, you know, you, like, you teach them and then you let them do it and you teach them and you let them do it and you make them do it, et cetera, et cetera. And then adulthood, there has to be the letting go and the point at which your children, you speak to them, you declare to them, you seal it in their minds. You are an adult now and you are out on your own. You need to leave the house now. You know what I mean? And they need to function on their own. They need to make their own family and they need to reproduce on their own. And there's still love and relationship and guidance, but there has to be in order for it to reproduce and be healthy, you have to go and and uh, get out. And so I put the next page, page 11, uh, just uh, from perspectives, a diagram from, uh, from uh, Ralph Winter where he talks about four, what's he say? What's the article name? Four Men, Three Eras, Two Transition, the history of the modern missions movement. And he talks about, he does this diagram because he talks about the primary retarding agent in the missions movement is the fact that Western missionaries will not let go of, of uh, indigenous churches and leadership. They perpetually paternalize them. And so you have kind of the, that's where I borrowed the threefold, where you have the pioneer stage, the infancy stage, the parenting stage, the child stage, the partnering stage, the young adult adolescent stage, and then the participant stage where you are fully empowered by the Holy Spirit. And I, you know, as an ideal, you never set that number, but I would say three years. It's the pattern Jesus did. Just consider it dog years, you know, three dog years. And the first seven years is young, second seven years is, is childhood, third seven years is adolescence, and then after three years, 21 years, that church ought to be an adult and function completely on its own and move on. I think it can happen a lot faster, may take a little longer, they hang out in the home till they're 28, but that's not healthy. And so, like, if you've taken perspectives, one of the most inspiring stories in that book is Brian Hogan when he goes, when Mongolia opens up in 1990 and he is on the, the Indian reservation and the Indian re- reservation is set up just like the culture is, is really analogous to the Mongolians and he goes in in 1990 and in three years establishes a house church movement that flourishes and, and, uh, and sets the seed there. Anyway, so 1 Corinthians 3, you get this idea of... Uh, of of uh, the desire to mature uh, spiritual families in the faith, but but I brothers could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it, and even now you are not ready, for you still 
are of the flesh. For where there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? And the point of being of the flesh is not that you're indulging in this set of things that is said no to or not indulging in that set of things. Is that you're not fully, strongly established in your faith in the age to come and walking according to it that you live out your lifestyle without somebody constantly correcting you in it. And so 1 Corinthians 3, that's his point, is some, you guys have division and, and confusion amongst you because you're saying you're following men rather than your devotion is completely to Jesus. And then chapter 4 and chapter 5, you have immorality among you. And chapter 6, you have division among you. You take each other to court. Don't you know that the immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't you know you're going to rule over the whole earth? You're still of the flesh. You're still of living according to life in this age, according to this body of death. You're not living according to the resurrected body that you will receive in the age to come and how you will live then. And so uh, parallel, like Colossians 3, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So his point of set your mind on things, your heart on things above where Christ is, is not that you set your hope on your heavenly destiny, your immaterial heavenly destiny. You set your mind and your heart where Jesus is enthroned in the height of heavens and he is going to come down and judge the earth. And therefore, as you set your heart on him enthroned over creation, you're inherently setting your heart on when he will execute that authority given to him in the day of the Lord. So what he's saying is set your heart on the age to come and your reward in the age to come. That's all he's saying. And so he says, in that light, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, which idolatry, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. And so people walk in the flesh according to the desires of a fallen human body, according to the ways of the world, because they don't really believe in the day of the Lord and the wrath that is to come, and they're not living according to the Spirit, which will be given to them in full in the resurrection. And so, uh, and so that's his point. You're living as infants because you're still living for this age and the pursuits of this age and life in this age. Uh, And then uh, Hebrews 6, this is another just beautiful logic in the equation. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. So all of the Old Testament prophets, you know, from Adam, from Enoch on, the basic principles of the oracles of God are the elementary teachings, which he gets to in a second. You need milk, not solid food. You need a foundation laid again of the fear of the day of the Lord before you can build a house of how you ought to walk out together, sojourning together in a righteousness of lifestyle, a culture of the day of the Lord, worship and prayer, discipleship, evangelism, etc., He says, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. 
And so the mature develop a culture and a lifestyle together where we don't waste our time watching movies that aren't edifying. Not against watching movies. Love me a little Nacho Libre. Not really that edifying, but <laughs> Chad loves Nacho. So, but we don't waste all of our time, you know, with video games and pursuits of this and that and just sitting around doing nothing for hours on end and talking about nothing and blah, blah, blah. We, we come together, like Paul says in, uh, what is it, Ephesians 5, everyone with a word and a hymn and a song, and we speak to each other and edify each other in light of the day of the Lord. So through powers of discernment, trained by constant practice, distinguish good for evil. Therefore, let us leave behind the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and lie the day of the Lord and faith and of faith towards God and of instruction about washing baptism unto the resurrection, laying on of hands, the Holy Spirit as a deposit, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. These are basic foundational you know, you guys are still infants. You're not even living according to the basic foundational day of the Lord reality. You know what I mean? Move on. Let's just establish the day of the Lord is coming. Live like it's real. Believe it and move on. And then that's why he immediately goes, for if it's possible to restore again to repentance, those who have once been enlightened, who tasted a gift of the Holy Spirit and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to ever be brought back again. You know what I mean? Like, all right. That's the point, is reproduce families that have a solid foundation on the day of the Lord, that have built a house where everybody is functioning together in maturity and love in light of the day of the Lord and the age to come. So D, this maturation goal was reached by a simple model of discipleship. New believers were established in their faith in Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit, incorporated into the life of the community, and lovingly discipled in light of the age to come. One, it's the growth of the church in simple loving obedience to Jesus under the power of the Holy Spirit, as summed up in the Sermon on the Mount and exemplified in the post-Pentecost church that is the only formula for consistent growth and multiplication. So I just took this list again from George Patterson, and I kind of altered it a little bit, but it's not real complicated. You preach the day of the Lord, people repent and believe, you baptize them in accordance with their repentance, they receive the Holy Spirit in accordance with their belief, you meet together, you celebrate communion, the sign of the suffering before the glory. You worship together, you pray for each other. You live a life of love towards God and service towards one another. You pray fast and give in secret so that in light of your reward at the day of the Lord, and you baptize and disciple others and carry it on. I mean, it is not hard to raise up a lay movement of preachers because anybody can meet in their home tell them about jesus and the day of the lord and they are authorized if they believe good let's go back in the bathtub and baptize you right now and let's you bring your family and your friends you tell your friends and family let's meet here we'll baptize them and we'll consistently meet here until we can meet in your home and you can celebrate communion together Break bread together, worship together. Somebody's good at, you know, somebody can play a guitar or you can just sing songs. You know, we, we do devotions every night with our kids and we just sing songs. I mean, you don't even need a skilled musician. 
but you can worship together, you can pray together, you can, and then you just take up, you gather offerings from everybody in the midst, and you give to the people in need, and you can even support, you know, a couple people to help lead the thing, and you can send out apostolic teams. It's really not that complicated. It's just a matter of doing it, because there's a whole lot of pressure and cultivation of expectation. I understand all this. I'm not ignorant. Page 13. Overly complex models of discipleship based on a convoluted gospel create passive and confused believers that eventually give up on their attempt to be an effective witness of Christ. And people zealous for the Lord come to the Lord. They're meeting in their homes. They're, they just... This is why usually... Movements of the Holy Spirit happen among young young people because they're not completely enculturated into the corporate-based model of getting together and completely enculturated into a deformed gospel. And they're just on fire and they love Jesus and they're getting together and the Holy Spirit's moving. People are getting healed. Miracles are happening. It's just kind of like... And then after a while, you know, the older people are like, well, you can go ahead and... You know, just continue on like that. But after a while, they start getting cranked down on and uh, discipline starts happening and they end up confused and lethargic like everyone else. So, uh, E, the maturation of new spiritual families happen in conjunction with the development of leadership, which was raised up in a participatory manner. So this this gets down to the nitty-gritty of the the familial maturation and multiplying spiritual families, how do you actually do it? So you train leadership because the fivefold ministry sets the environment for the family to grow. And so of chief order is how you train leadership in the multiplication of spiritual families. So the uh, way that it happens in the New Testament is leadership is, is happens in the context of the house church movement, in the context of mentoring and discipleship. I haven't seen it happen a lot, but I mean, like in the campus ministry I was a part of, leaders were cha- leaders were cha- trained like crazy because they're all trained in the midst of all of our home fellowships. And, you know, people were just constantly leading small groups and leading worship and leading prayer. And they were just inherently trained up in the movement. And then we sent them all off to, to a seminary to get slaughtered. So uh, the fivefold ministry personally invested in and raised up other leaders in the midst of ministry and church planning. Thus, new leaders were not separated from their communities and relationships for training as, in, as is common today. So like Acts 14, Paul uh, and Barnabas returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they say. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. And then Titus 1 uh, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless since he is an overseer as entrusted with God's work. And so the elder is just the generic form of a leader which can function in any one of the fivefold ministry in that context like we talked about in uh, whatever session 8. One, this on-the-field training leadership was trained in context to personal mentoring and a way of life that modeled the righteousness of the coming age. 
Like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, I became your father. I urge you to imitate me. That is why I sent to you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. 1 Corinthians 10, I try to please everyone in everything. And everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they might be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them. And then likewise, not only do you get training in the praxis, in the form and structure of how to administrate the gospel, but also in the gospel itself. And uh, in solid teaching, for I'm not ashamed, for, for I know whom I believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard you until the day that has been trusted to me. Follow the pattern, the sound words that you have heard from me in faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Guard the deposit given to you. And then Second Timothy 2, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace of God, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witness, witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others. Because point three, the extraction of leaders for, for out of community for professionalized training in modern society is disaster. And by the grace of God, he kept me alive in it. And uh, this guy, you know, right before I went to seminary, the day I left, a guy not prone to visions or dreams, the day I left for seminary, he had a dream. And then he had a dream the next night and the next night. And in his dream, me, him, and another guy that we worked with, and a whole multitude of people, Young people standing behind us were on the edge of a cliff, and it's like a chasm 2,000 feet down. And in the dream, I grab a hold of this rope and swing across the chasm and land on the other side, but I'm dangling on the edge of this cliff. I don't quite make it to the other side, and I'm like holding on for dear life. And this eagle swoops down, this huge eagle in the dream grabs me and sets me up on the other side. And then the next night, he has a dream and picks off, picks up right where it left off. And I'm on the other side building these foundation stones on the side of the cliff. And then the next night, he picks up again the third night in a row. And I've built this little rope bridge across from the foundation stones to the other side. And there's people kind of trickling across on it. And it played out just like that. Three years in seminary where I was just dangling on the edge of a cliff with a small group, four couples of us in a small group together, bound together and just hanging on for dear life. And I mean, we like I'm going next weekend. We have a reunion with those guys every year and they're our dearest friends. But it was that context of that home group. And I would have little seasons, a month or two at a time, where the Holy Spirit, symbolized by the eagle, I would just have like every other day a dream or a vision or just massive encounter in the Word, and then it would shut off. There would be nothing for six months. And then, boom, a month or two at a time, just intense. And it really saved me from being sucked into that whole world and the foolishness of it. And then the second three-year period... The Lord, you know, I had, I ended up coming out here and I ended up going back to school, which, you know, mystified everybody, including myself. And for three years, you know, going to school here, I was building the foundation stones. And now, and then AMS started. And for three years now, this is the, 
this is the three years, this is the little rope bridge, you know, a little trickling of people across the rope. So, um, so I'm really grateful for the Lord just to, to save me from, because that really is where seminary becomes cemetery. It's not just the bad theology, which it is, but it's the disastrous practice. It's the praxis where people are extracted from their loving home fellowships, some of them, and planted in the middle of nowhere and they just dry up and die because they don't have anybody. There's this professionalized environment where everything has to be perfect and it's just like disaster to the human spirit. Um, So four, the use of tithes to support leaders within the church must be done locally and reasonably in light of the ability of the church and the fear of the day of the Lord. A local house church ought to easily be able to care for the poor and needy in its midst, support a few elders, and consistently send out apostolic teams. Easily ought to support these three things. Okay, so... uh, the poor and needy, like Acts 4, you have there, in the context of everybody being a one mind and heart, there were no, uh, they shared everything, there were no needy persons among them. And this isn't like a communal lifestyle. You'll see that it's a very practical, simple house church model. And they're not just like, you know, don't have, you know, it's all common possessions. That's not how it actually happened. Okay, we'll see in a second. There is no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. And then the next verse uh, versus Barnabas, he sold a plot of land, gave it to the disciples. And so the point is they're not selling in houses and lands and becoming homeless. It's because you have a few rich people in the midst who have some extra land and houses sitting around from their inheritance and their business. And so why do I need that? I got a bunch of people in my house church that I'm meeting with who are not making ends meet. Why not just sell it in light of the age to come and bless the, bless the people and store up for myself riches? Use your worldly wealth, Luke 16, to bless people so that in the age to come, you'll receive a warm welcome into eternal dwellings. And so that's all they were doing. They had excess. You got rich people. They're just selling off some excess, giving it to people that they love and blessing people. And there's no need in their midst. I mean, I don't know if you've been to churches, but there are a lot of people in churches. They have so much money, they don't even know what to do with. And they tithe like half of a percent of their income because they're so completely disinterested and building the church's empire, and they have absolutely nothing stirring, and they go to church because it's a social obligation. There are so many people that the Lord is blessed with wealth, and if we would just give a context of the age to come, like First, First Timothy 6, where Paul says, encourage the wealthy amongst you to be generous in good deeds, to store up a treasure in heaven for themselves that will not perish or fade away. Anyway, uh, so Acts 6, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it wouldn't be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. 
Now here's what you get. You start to set it up because the point of eldership and the fivefold ministry within the church is not only to shepherd the church in light of the age to come in righteousness and discipleship, but it's to manage the finances of the house churches and distribute it in maturity and, and righteousness. So 1 Timothy 5, give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. The proper recognition is the daily list of people in the home fellowships that are in need. No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she's over 60, has been faithful to her husband, is well known for her good deeds. If any woman who is a believer has widows in her family, she should help them and not let the church be burdened with them so that the church can help those widows who are really in need. And the orphans, like James 1, religion that our God, that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after the orphans and the widows in their distress. Okay, this isn't theoretical. He's talking about your home group, your home churches, your house churches, and how you function. And so to look after them and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. My brothers, there's no shift in thought. My brothers, as believers in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in, and then he goes on. His point is, in your house groups, care for, without showing favoritism, the poor and the needy, the widow and the orphans in your midst. And the point of the tithes and offerings in the home fellowship is primarily to bless those in need in that fellowship. Not to go to build up these massive corporate assets and holdings. And so uh, um, 2 Corinthians 8, and now brothers, we want you to know, I mean this is the, like Paul just lays it out. Now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given to the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. I mean, when you're in in an intimate community where people know each other, It is a joy and privilege when you are blessed financially and you can give it to somebody who needs finances. And the joy that you get when you get to love people. And I mean, there's such a bond created when you give people money or resources that they're in need of. And the friendship, I mean, I I have a broken relationship that the Lord just said on my heart, just give them 200 bucks, son. And so... I just give them 200 bucks and instantly the relationship is restored. You know what I mean? And there had already been like six months of kind of awkwardly saying hi to him, walking past him in the hall and just a disaster, a disaster that unfolded previously. I give him 200 bucks and we just love each other. You know what I mean? I mean, there's just, it's such a powerful tool if we will use it shrewdly to love people and not to build up power, impact, and assets. You know what I mean? Um, so it's their privilege in this service to the saints. Our desire is not that others might be re- relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. 
At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. So there will be equality as it's written. He who gathered much did not have too much. He who gathered little did not have too little. And people have this kind of funny idea about Acts 2, like it was mandated by the apostles that everybody sell all their stuff and just, you know, be half homeless and living with each other. And that's not what was going on at all. There was a culture of love and discipleship and caring for one another in light of the age to come where people were blessing each other out of love and generosity towards each other. And there was no needy in their midst because they were reflecting the love of God and how, and how Christ will function in the age to come when there's not going to be any needy in the kingdom to come. Uh, so there's the you take the the offerings and tithes in their midst uh, subsidize the needy in their midst, and then secondly, it subsidized an elders. And so the second thing that's massively dysfunctional about a corporate model of church in the Western world is that number one, all of the money of the people goes to number one maintain and buy the massive corporate holdings. The amount of money it takes. To maintain an even one-acre complex is just, it's staggering how much it costs to maintain corporate assets. But then to maintain a professionalized uh, staff and clergy in which it's their full-time occupation and the salaries that we, we pay them is also just as staggering in maintaining the training institutions and all of that. And so there, the second part is that you have overly compensated uh, leadership in which you have overly compensated few of leadership, whereas you need to have a plethora of leaders and a few that are compensated in accordance with their sphere of authority and the work they do in equipping the body. And so some men, yes, I mean, they're in a situation, they can be compensated full. There's no formula. It's based on particular groups. And, you know, some groups are going to have really wealthy people in them and can support full-time, you know, people in their midst in leadership. And some groups, I mean, you got house churches all throughout China where almost all of the leadership works and preaches the gospel and leads, leads house churches. And they also get, you know, helped out in their leadership, and that's just on a case-by-case basis. But these, those, those two areas, helping the needy and supporting eldership, and so First, first Timothy 5, right on the heels of honoring the widows, in verse 16, verse 17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. Okay, the honor is in context to putting them on the list so that they can receive uh, help financially. And so let the elders receive double honor and let them be uh, supported financially, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. And the picture is, is that the ox treads out the grain and you don't put a muzzle on him so that he can't eat while he's treading out the grain. You take the muzzle off so that while he's working, he gets to eat and receive his livelihood off of treading out the grain. So his point is, look, those who are elders and leaders in your midst, don't muzzle them and not compensate them. You compensate the needy, also compensate the elders in your midst. And, and, uh, and then, so this is why, you know, First Peter 5 
To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's suffering, who will share in the glory to be revealed, be shepherds of God's flock, serving as overseers, not because you must. Why? Not because you must. Because you're getting paid to do it. Not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money. Okay? But eager to serve, not lording it over those who are entrusted to you. And then page 16 First Peter 2, this is why there's the constant emphasis on whenever there's eldership, it has to be established that it's not out of greed because we're supposed to reimburse and help out of the, out of the offerings of the community, the leadership. But those who uh, were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, in their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they made up. Titus 1 for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, drunk or violent, or greedy for gain. Because the false teachers, they teach for shameful gain. And then First Thessalonians 2, on the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We didn't come with flattery or to cover up our greed. Okay, because the point is, is that the elders are the one that receive the offerings in the community. And that's why it's so important they be mature and not young, and they, be, they have households that clearly they've established a pattern that they can rule over a little flock and use their resources to bless their kids, and their kids aren't rebellious. Therefore, they can rule over a home church and use the money and resources to bless the people. And so the elders collect the, collect the tithe in the equation and then distribute it to the needy in their midst in wisdom and understanding. And then third, the sending out of apostolic teams. We're out of time, but I, I just put those down through there where Paul, in context to his own being sent out, argues with the Corinthians, do not muzzle the ox, for they, those who work for the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But I didn't give that burden, even though I did rob from the Macedonian churches so that I could preach the gospel to you. And so the Macedonian churches were... were caring for the needy in their midst, they're supporting their own eldership, and they're sending out apostolic teams like with Paul. And so, uh, so the point is, is that, seriously, you got to stop calling me. Oh. All right, so... Uh, so Ephesians, uh, uh, Philippians 4, you have the same thing where Paul is talking about to the Philippians. Ever since he went out, he received for them and was amply supplied by them. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving. Because what's the, what's the verse right prior to this? These are two of the most commonly, the verse, verse 13, right before 14, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. I know what it's like to be content with much and content with little. The context is he's content in his being supported as an apostolic band and team by other churches from their offering. And sometimes he's supported well, and sometimes he's not supported well. And he says, 
But it is good for you to share in my troubles when I was not being supported well. As you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except only you. For even when I was with, was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I'm looking for a gift, but I'm looking for that it might be credited to your account. I've received full payment and even more. I'm amply supplied. Now I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And then what's the next verse? And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And so the point is, is that, yes, Paul was a tent maker sometimes. Sometimes he was fully funded, sometimes not. But you have this organic home-based fellowship model in which you have a home fellowship of 20 people. Everybody's giving at least 20%. And you're going to have three or four people there that can live off of about 10% of their income. Like, I know a guy, he supported us for a while, he lives on less than 5% of his income. And he still makes 80 to 100 grand every year, and he gives all the rest away to different missions organizations and people and groups. You're going to have wealthy people in your midst who are content with living on a normal wage and blessing their home fellowship, the, the poor in their midst, and supporting leadership and sending out, and you have a multiplicity of leaders and sending out apostolic teams. I mean, a home church of 20 people living in light of the day of the Lord should easily be able to support three full-time leaders, support all the needy in their midst, and send out a few apostolic teams every year, easily. If it's a group of people that are mature, really believe in the day of the Lord, and are using their resources and finances to win people to Jesus and, and strengthen the witness of Jesus in their midst. You know what I'm saying? Like, this can happen. It's not that hard. The question is, because I always get asked, how does that happen? And so I put threefold, uh, threefold uh, reformation to a healthy and reproductive church. And I... and. And this may seem mundane to you guys, but as I've stirred on it over the years, I just realize there's no way forward other than to call leaders who have enculturated a body to repent of their greed and pride to gather together little empires. That is what drives it. And you, don't, you can't get people together in a conference and tell them good praxis and good theology. They don't care. What is really driving the situation is their desire for empire. And that thing has to be axed at the core. And then once the desire is right, then set your hope on the day of the Lord and create a common atmosphere, an atmosphere of common servitude to a common master and a common understanding of us being judged on a common day with a common faith. Your orthodoxy. And then... Sell the corporate holdings. Bless the people in your midst. Send out apostolic teams. Do 30 pastors instead of three. Tell your pastors to get a part-time job and get out and start telling unbelievers about Jesus. You know what I mean? It's just like, it's really not that hard or complex. It's hard or complex because you have an entire system created and enculturated and groomed so that it's not just the leaders that believe it has to be this way. It's the people. Because you get a leader who says, this is wrong. This whole empire thing is wrong and it's ineffective. I repent 
I'm going to set my hope and we're going to be a day of the Lord church and we need to sell all this stuff and the people will rise up and the sheep will destroy that man because the people's identity is in that corporate holding rather than their inheritance in the day of the Lord. Their identity is in, is in that in corporate holding, their inheritance in this age. And so it's not an easy thing, I'm not, uh, but I just want to lay out that it's the only path forward. And if you want to deal with it, it's, uh, the heart starts first. I was so blessed I went home. This just came to my mind. I went home this last weekend, and uh, I was talking to a guy, and he kind of actually discipled me a bit when I was in Arkansas. He was just a zealous. He was a lawyer part-time, and then he just was leading home groups and leading you know people to Christ, and he helped me teach down at the youth center for a little while. And after I left and went to seminary, he started a church. He left his lawyer position, started a church with another guy, and it's just been blessed, and they're totally missions-oriented, and they had a big plot of land given to them with a building on it, and they started meeting there, and the life in their fellowship started to die. And they were like, this is crazy. So they just sold it. Blessed a bunch of people in their midst, gave a ton of it to missions, sent out a bunch of people, and started renting out a place for them to meet on Sunday mornings. And I was so inspired. I was like, oh my goodness. Isn't that that hard? Oh God, give us grace. All right, let's pray. Lord, we ask you for grace and favor that you would raise up uh, and strengthen our hearts to truly uh, reform from the heart level to the mind to the life in all areas, God. You would give us boldness, but with respect and gentleness and kindness, we ask you to give us clarity on how to walk, walk forward with the gospel and be good stewards as leaders over the things you give us, God. Help us be a faithful witness, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.